You can be seated for just a moment. We're going to come now to a time of prayer together as a church family. It's so important that we do this every week, that we gather together, that we lift up the Lord's name, but that we call on him too, that we bring before him. Scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews that we should come to the throne of grace because God wants to hear us. God wants to move in our lives. And each week we talk about how we want to follow Jesus in our personal lives, in community together as a church family, but also on mission. Uh, and so this week I want to pray for something unique, something that happened a couple of weeks ago that hopefully you guys have heard about in the news, and that's the earthquake that was in Turkey. A really devastating disaster that has caused widespread destruction across two nations. And so as a church family, we thought, how could we come and meet that? How can we be a part of what God wants to do in the midst of that? Be a people on mission, supporting God's work of loving and caring for those who need care. And so what happened, I'm proud to share with you, is that we were able to step into that gap a little bit. And $10,000 was given to International Turkey Network uh, for earthquake relief from our Save the World funds. And that is put together by generosity of people like you and our church family. We were able to meet that need and to step into that gap and join with partners on the ground there because of your generosity. So we want to keep praying for them that God would move as well. Uh, just to let you know, Te International Tagging Network has been a ministry partner of ours for 20 years, and so we've had a long relationship with them. We're able to hear from some of our workers on the ground when the earthquake happened and some of the immediate needs and so we were able to support them and step in there. But we want to keep praying that God would supply their every need because there's a lot of work to be done. And one thing that we can be grateful for is that this time in history, there's actually more churches available than when there was an earthquake in 1999. And so we have a unique opportunity in this moment to be the people of God stepping into the gap and caring for those who need his grace and his love and his support. So what I want to do as a church family is I just want to take a few moments together. I want to pray for the people of Turkey. I want to pray that God would move and that God would rescue. So would you pray this with me? Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you that, Lord, when the ground quakes and people's lives fall apart, your heart breaks. And, Lord, that you grieve the pain and the loss of these disasters. And rather than being a God that stands back coldly, God, you are a God who draws near, that you come near to those who need your grace. And, God, we ask for that. We ask for those who have lost their homes, God, those whose lives have been upended by this, God, that you would come and meet with them. Father, I pray that you would be faithful to those who call on you. For the churches on the ground right now, God, I pray that you would supply their needs to be those that are first on the scene. God, that these churches would be able to stand in the gap, provide support for those who need it. And God, that the people of Turkey would see that you are a God of mercy and justice compassion. Father, I pray that you would challenge us, the other side of the world, Lord, to not just see this disaster on the news and move on with our lives, but Father, that you would put it on our hearts to pray, to give, to go, that we would be a people on mission. However that mission looks for us personally, God, invite us and compel us to join with you in what you're doing in the nations. Father, that is the call that you have placed on all of us who call ourselves your followers. We pray by your grace that we would step up to that challenge. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, uh, I just feel... Uh, 
ill-equipped to talk about what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about something from Genesis 2 that is so profoundly important. Uh, we're going to actually spend the next couple of weeks kind of taking a look at what it is that happens here in this chapter, what it means for humanity and everything like that. But again, just worshiping this morning, I'm preparing for this, and I just feel ill-equipped. Because what we're going to talk about is so beautiful, so magnificent. And the truth is, there's not one of us in this room that has truly understood this gift, or valued this gift, or blessed this gift. And so what we want to do this morning, I want to invite us, right at the outset, to lay aside what we think we may know about this. And to ask the Lord to come and renew in us a beautiful vision of what happens here in chapter 2. I brought with me this picture of Ginny and I. I don't always get good gifts for my wife, but this is one that I'm particularly proud of. I got this shortly after we were engaged, I think. Is that right, Ginny? And this is a picture of our engagement. You can see the kind of picture of, of me proposing to Ginny there. But it's made, if you go up close, you can see there's tiny pictures of me and Ginny from all the time that we were dating that kind of create this mosaic that form the one picture. I know, very impressive. Husbands do this. But here's the reason I brought this with you today. Because I was always reflecting this week on what marriage is, what happens here in chapter 2. I want us to understand that God is painting a picture for us. He is painting a picture. Marriage is this small tile that creates something much larger. And the question this morning that I want to look at together is, what's the picture? What's the bigger picture that is being accomplished in Genesis chapter 2? See, if we're not paying attention, we won't see what this is really all about. And the truth is, when we talk about things like marriage, in secular culture right now, there's a lot of divided opinion about whether marriage even really is something that matters anymore. Actually, there was a recent Pew study. Barely half of U.S. adults are married, and nearly four in ten believe that marriage has become obsolete as an institution. And you might say, well, maybe Christians have got it better, but the truth is, Christians are just as confused as everybody else truly about what marriage is meant to be. Sometimes we get it very wrong. In Christian culture, quite honestly, we are just as confused. We idolize and project this picture of marriage as though unless you are married, you are incomplete in some way. So damaging to so many people. And even more than that, once we get married, it seems that the value that we have for it sometimes drifts away. And we suffer from just as many problems as everyone else. So the question is, what's the bigger picture? What is it that we should be looking at? What is it we should be thinking about and reflecting on when we talk about marriage? So we're going to do this, and we're going to do it in three ways. We're going to look at three things, three firsts that happen in Genesis 2. One, the first problem. Two, the first woman who has nothing to do with the problem. And three, the first wedding. Three things that are so important, three firsts that are so important to us understanding the bigger picture. So before we do that, I just want to pray again as a church family, because what we need this morning is not Andrew's opinion, it's not anybody else's opinion, it's the Spirit of God speaking to us about the true beauty of what we see in Genesis 2. So would you pray with me just briefly? Father, thank you for this opportunity to come before your word. God, we want to sit under it this morning, we want to be transformed by it this morning, we want to be encouraged by it this morning. So God, I pray that as we go through it, Lord, that you would use these words. Lord, I prayed earlier this week that you would use this, but God, I ask again this morning, set me aside, set all of our ideas aside this morning, and Spirit, speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about the first problem, the first problem. So we've been tracking this story in Genesis. We left off last week at this moment where God has created the man, he's placed him in the garden, but now we find a problem. We find a problem. And this is what I was thinking about this week, is really the problem is that men don't do well when they're by themselves. 
Men are kind of like very small children. You don't want to leave them alone for too long. Bad things happen. Just this year, let me tell you a couple of things that have happened in our house when we leave our kids alone. When we've left our kids alone, we found out that our daughter, Annie, was cutting pieces of carpet, and we would just find pieces of fluff all around the house. We're like, where's this piece of carpet coming from? And we actually got really worried. I made my wife nervous. I thought, well, maybe there's a mouse burying through things. Janae was not happy about that, so we were relieved to discover it was just our daughter. Our son, Ben, has a habit of writing his name on every surface imaginable. So you will find at various locations throughout the house, the name Ben just inscribed on banisters, on walls, on his side of his bed, all kinds of things. Not good to leave them on their own for too long. And the same is true about Adam. This is what God says when he comes to Adam in Genesis 2. It says, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. Some of the most profound words. So important. Keep that in your mind. It's not good that man should be alone. So I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God identifies a problem, the very first problem. All of creation so far has been described by God as good, if not good, very good. Everything is wonderful, but here God finds the first problem. shouldn't even really say find, because what God wants to do in this moment is not come to a realization that he's done something wrong, but actually show the man something that he did on purpose, something that he did intentionally. God wants Adam to understand that loneliness is not good. That isolation is not good. That he has been created for relationship. He's given this rhythm so far of work and rest, but work and rest is not enough. And that's something all of us need to hear this morning. Work and rest is not enough. We need meaningful, deep relationships. It's what God intended us for. According to a 2018 survey by Cigna, loneliness levels have reached an all-time high with nearly half of 20,000 U.S. adults reporting that sometimes or always they feel alone. 40% of survey participants also reported that they sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that despite having many relationships, they still feel isolated. Maybe you can sympathize with some of that research. Maybe you can feel like, yeah, that's describing my life. The reason is it's not good for man to be alone. It's built into the fabric of who we are. And God was perfectly aware of this when he designed this. It's not a flaw. God is not stumbling across and being like, shoot, I really didn't think about this. God is aware of how he made Adam. The only person who's not yet aware is Adam. He needs to understand how he was designed. And so God reveals the problem to the man. How does he do this? He does what I think is a rather humorous exercise. He brings all the animals before Adam to find a, a helper suit for him. Now, again, God is not doing this under the impression that, God might, uh, that Adam might be interested in a lion as a long-term partner. He's doing it because he wants Adam to see that everything else in creation has a partner. Imagine being Adam and God is bringing before you all the other animals that are in pairs, male and female. And what does Adam realize? He realizes there's nothing like that for me. Or everything else in creation is designed a certain way, and I don't have that. There's nothing else like me in all of creation. And so he becomes aware of this need that he has. God exposes it to him. And I think what God wants to do in us 
is expose that same thing. Because it's very possible that this morning, no matter how busy your life is, no matter how many different kinds of relationships you have, you may still feel isolated. You may still be alone. And what God wants to say is that's not good. God wants to meet that need. He has designed you for deep, meaningful relationships. Ecclesiastes 4 says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Storyline of scripture again and again is you are not meant to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. And that's why as a church, one of the key things that we do is we try and provide places for community because it is integral to walking with Jesus. To have a vibrant, healthy, spiritual life, you can't be alone. You have got to find that place where you can connect, where you can have deep, meaningful relationships. Because the truth is, it's very easy to be busy. It's hard to be known. It's easy to be seen. Hard to be known. In a church context, so easy to walk through that door every week, sit in the seat. People see you. People might even know your name. But the truth is, if we are not sharing our life, if we are not carrying one another's burdens, if we are not making known that we are alone and we need community, we will miss out on part of what God has intended for us. God deeply desires meaningful relationship in our life. Now, in Adam's case, he's going to provide for that in a very specific way. A unique way. In Adam's case, and much to the delight of every woman everywhere, the first solution was the first woman. I love this because it's pointing out, Adam, he was good, but without a woman, he's not very good. The first solution was the first woman. So God creates the first woman. Now, I've been hooked on uh, puzzles lately. I feel kind of sad about that because it means I'm transitioning into this stage of life where puzzles actually excite me, which is not, not all that thrilling. But I was working on this thousand-piece puzzle this week, and I'm getting sucked into it. I can't put it down, can't stop doing it. And the most frustrating thing about puzzles, if you've ever done them, especially the bigger ones, is that there are so many pieces that look so alike, but the puzzle doesn't work if they're exactly alike. If you want the puzzle to actually be put together, you need pieces that are similar, but not exactly alike. That's some of what God is doing in humanity by creating male and female. He is creating a greater picture of things that are very similar but are distinct and different because together they form a better picture. This is what we're told, Genesis 2, when all these animals are brought before and no helper is found fit for Adam. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, I've loved digging into this this week the significance of what God has done here. And I hope for us this morning as we travel through a few of the significant details about what God does when he creates a woman, it illuminates us to just how beautiful and significant and important this is. First of all, that term helper, right? He says he's going to create a helper fit for him. In English, that word doesn't really capture what God is doing here. And in fact, actually, we've, we've used that word to make less of women a lot throughout history. 
We've kind of reduced them to this picture of, well, men are doing really great and they just need someone to kind of keep up with the other tasks for them. A milkmaid or uh, a baby maker or some kind of silly, ridiculous reduction of womanhood. Deeply sinful because what God is saying about women here is incredible. The phrase that he uses for helper is is a connecto. It occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. Only two times of those are about Eve, here in this first chapter, when he's talking about the helper fit from. In every other use, the word helper is referring to military aid, a strong, powerful force that is going to rescue. He's one of the occasions it comes out. Actually, most often, this is worth saying, it's actually referring to the aid of the Lord himself. Like in Deuteronomy 33, 7, it says this, He said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring to him him in to his people. With your hands contend for him, and be a help, is a connecto, against his adversaries. The Lord is a help. So what God is doing when he creates women, he's doing far more than just some kind of assistant for Adam. He is supplying him his very best solution for his loneliness. He's supplying him with what we would better phrase a fellow warrior, powerful. Heroic. And here's the significance of how God made Eve. The word that he uses for made when he forms her is a word bana. And this is a word that's used most often in Hebrew for constructing buildings of unusual strength. Pastor Brian had a humorous comment about this this week when we were talking about this together. He's like, if Eve is going to be able to help Adam, she's going to have to be built for it because he's a real problem. She has to be built with unusual strength to help this man who's in need of her partnership. So God forms a, constructs something of unusual strength. And the way that he does it is he splits Adam in half. He takes one of his ribs. Now again, whenever we're talking about these sections of scripture, I don't want you to necessarily get too lost in the literal nature of it. It's the picture that it's painting for us, however God chose to do it. God did not take from above. He did not take from below. He takes from the side. Because Eve is going to be someone of equal worth and dignity and significance who is going to partner beside Adam. She is not going to serve beneath him. She is not going to rule above him. They are to be partners together, complementing one another and advancing the mission that God has given them. The other things that we can notice about this is Eve is the only being in all of creation not made from death. Everything else is pulled from the death, but not Eve. Later in the Bible, we're told that husbands should love their wives as their own body. Why? Because women come from the body of men. She is our body. She is not made of anything less. And this is something that would have been really unique in this ancient culture. To say that women were completely equal in significance and value and worth and importance before God's eyes. You cannot read what the Bible has to say about women seriously and then come to the conclusion that they are in any way less capable or worthful. The point is that God made women to strengthen and secure what he'd already done. Proverbs 31, one of the most famous passages talking about wives, says this, An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Again, what Proverbs 31 is saying there is not she exists to make him look better. 
It's saying that she, because of the strength of her heart, because of the unique qualities in which God has woven into womanhood, makes everything around her better. She strengthens it. She draws out the goodness of it. That is a holy responsibility, woman. You have been uniquely crafted by God to do something that men cannot do. There is something unique about your nature, intentional about your nature as a woman, that God has crafted. You are the first solution to the first ever problem, God's best idea. Adam cannot be fruitful without Eve. He can't accomplish his mission without Eve. He can't fulfill his purpose without his partner. And the idea here isn't that we all individually need a romantic marital partner. It's that humanity does. It means that the image of God is best displayed in this partnership between men and women, both equal in dignity and worth and value, but distinct in their nature. God wants to reflect his glory by putting two equal, complementary partners together. The best way I could describe this is to steal words from Paul Tripp, who says this. He says, one way God establishes beauty is by putting things that are different next to each other. Isn't this exactly what God does in marriage? He puts very different people next to each other. This is how he establishes the beauty of marriage. The moon would not be so striking if it hung in a white sky. And in the same way, the striking beauty of marriage is when two very different people learn to celebrate and benefit from their differences, to be protected from their weaknesses by being sheltered by the other's strength. That's the beauty of what God is doing in this moment. It's incredible. And it says something so important to us about our identity. It says that the distinctions between manhood and womanhood are not interchangeable because they are holy, sacred. When we minimize the difference between men and women, what we actually unintentionally do is that we belittle the beauty of both. When we say that manhood and womanhood are really just titles and that we've come up with to describe something, we miss the fact that actually there's a unique, distinctive nature that God has gifted us with. It's beautiful. He's presenting himself in a way that is so unique to each gender. The other important dilemma, of course, is that there's no chance of companionship of any kind, no chance of community unless this man and this woman come together. Because this is the way in which God is not only going to create a partner for each individually, but it is the means through which he will fill the earth. The first wedding. This is what happens at the first wedding. As soon as Adam lays eyes on Eve, he says this, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What a beautiful end to chapter two. What a beautiful picture of the goodness of God, the joy of God, the love of God. I want you to see four things about marriage in this section. Four important, unique things. First of all, marriage is a display of God's love. Marriage is a display of God's love. When Adam sees Eve, what happens is he bursts into song. You'll notice if you're reading this in your Bible, it's kind of inset. Because it's a song, it's a poem that Adam proclaims upon laying eyes upon this woman. 
He's so full of joy, so full of excitement. And what he's really saying is this. When he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's saying, this at last is what I've been looking for. He's saying that when I lay eyes on you, I have found myself. I'm not just coming to another. I'm coming to someone who's helped me see who I am. Eve is already in her first few seconds of life, completely changed life for Adam. Enhanced him, given him sight that he didn't have before. Understanding that he didn't have before. It brings true joy to him. And that is God's love for him and for Eve, is that he wants them both to experience the joy of their partnership. He's brought them to one another. Now there's another slightly less uh, straightforward thing that we see here, and a little bit more awkward. What Adam's doing when he lays eyes on this woman is he's saying, she looks very, very nice. What is happening here is that Adam and Eve are both discovering sexuality for the first time. Now, this is the point where I want to make clear to you, this is not God presenting a naked man to a naked woman and then all of a sudden being shocked when they were really into each other. God has not stumbled across sexuality. He did it on purpose. He set this up intentionally. God is presenting their sexuality to them as a gift. He loves them. God designed and created sexuality to be very, very good. And that might be shocking to some of us who grew up in Christian circles because quite honestly, far too often, the way that we've talked about sex as Christians is we've said, don't think about it, don't touch it. If you go near it, you will set on fire and you will die. If you grew up in a Christian youth group, you were told, stay as far away from this, don't think about it until you get married, and then all of a sudden, you can think everything about it. And it's been so difficult because what it's done is it's eroded and distorted and twisted healthy views of marriage that God wants us to understand. Healthy views of sexuality that God wants us to understand. Our sexuality is, is kind of like a train engine. God has given it to us. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It exists for a reason. And we should not be apologetic about it. It's not some bad thing about us that we should hide. However, like any train engine, it needs tracks to run on. Or it can be very destructive. It can be dangerous. And so what God does is he tells us about something else. Marriage is not just a display of God's love. Marriage is a display of God's covenant faithfulness. For sexuality to be expressed in the way God intended, it requires boundaries. The train requires tracks to run on. So God institutes the first marriage as a covenant relationship between Adam and Eve to protect them and to allow them to maximally enjoy one another and the relationship that they have. God wants to protect this joy that he's just revealed to them. That's why it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. A covenant relationship is kind of a fancy way of describing a sacred promise, a holy promise between two people to be bound together for life. And in, in the text here, what happens is we see this word, therefore, and what's happening is the author of Genesis kind of stepping back out of the narrative for a moment and saying, what I've just described to you, this is the reason that we have marriage, is because what God has done is beautiful and it's good and it needs protecting. It needs putting on the tracks that can help it thrive and grow in the way that God intended. That's why we commit to one another in marriage. That's why we say that we are one flesh. That phrase doesn't just mean coming together in sexual union, it means the totality of who we are being shared with one another in covenant sacred promise. 
You know, an interesting fact I read this week, the Atlantic reported on a recent study that said monogamous, boring people who attend church have the greatest sexual satisfaction. In fact, the correlation of religion with good relationships was especially pronounced amongst women. Those in highly religious marriages were 50% more likely to report being strongly satisfied than their secular and less religious counterparts. Do you know why? Because God wants us to have healthy, thriving, beautiful relationships that bring us a deep joy. God profoundly cares about your joy. He is so concerned about your joy. God's commands to stay within a certain set of boundaries is not driven by a desire to withhold joy from us. It is to protect it for us. You see, we can drive on the other side of the road if we want, but we will run into another car. We have the freedom to use what God has given us in any way we choose. However, God has been very clear that it can be destructive if not protective. And I think that we all know that that's true in our good. We've all experienced the brokenness and the pain of relationships that have veered outside of God's bounds. And the truth is there's any number of ways to disregard God's design for marriage and sexuality from sheer lust to infidelity. We could pump the list out, but the reason I don't want to do that with you this morning is that's not what God does. When God sets this up, he doesn't create a list for Adam and Eve and say, okay, here's the things I don't want you to do. What he does, he says, here is what I do want you to do. And I want you to protect this. I want you to have joy with one another. I want you to have faithfulness amongst one another. I want you to have commitment and security with one another. Jesus and Paul both refer back to Genesis 2 as the ground for all of their sexual ethics that they then discuss later in the Bible and in the New Testament. This is the source of everything that we say about sexuality and marriage. Now, good sexuality in our culture is a stark contrast. Good sexuality in our culture is whatever satisfies us, whatever we want to do, whatever meets that need that we perceive in ourselves. And we say that we don't want to have boundaries of any kind. But here's what's interesting is that despite the fact that our culture has largely rejected the notion of a, a covenant relationship for sexuality, even though many would say the Christian view is outdated, the average person, if you ask them what they want out of a relationship, would describe what happens in Genesis 2. They want a relationship where they can feel secure. They want a relationship where they can be loved. Have confidence in that. No one plans to get to fall in love and then break it up. No one is saying, that's what I want. Everyone is saying, is I want a relationship where I can be freely loved. We want what God has created without the boundaries that God has given us. And that's a problem. Not only that, but in our culture, sexuality has for many people become the part of themselves which defines everything else. It is the most fundamental part of who they are. And so the Christian view of sexuality is seen as this painful deny of a person's core identity. So I can understand from my LGBT brothers and sisters why when we talk about this topic, it can be so painful because if you have crafted your identity, if the most fundamental important part of yourself is your sexuality, 
to hear Christians say that we need boundaries on this is to say we need boundaries on your identity, on who you are. Can you imagine how painful that must be? And so the difference in the Christian view of sexuality is that it's not who we are, it is a part of who we are. It's not even the most important part of who we are. If we make sexuality in something that is a part of our core identity, that makes some real problems for single people, doesn't it? Because what that means, if you're a single person and you can't express your sexual identity because you need a covenant relationship for it, that's the only place you can find it, then what it says is that you are less than fully yourself. And that's why I think it's so destructive that we have allowed this view of sexuality to come in because now it is causing untold pain for people. The train has went way off the tracks and has caused so much destruction. And you know what? I've been a part of that. You have been a part of that. All of us need to come back to this beautiful vision and ask God to redeem, to restore, and to heal because we have all played our part in creating this culture that has caused pain. Genesis 2, just to be clear, is not saying that singleness is not good. You don't need a marital spouse, you need Jesus. That's true whether you're married or not. Genesis 2 is one aspect of the answer to man being alone. But the Bible is clear that sexuality is not our identity. Sexuality is not the totality of who we are. It is not something that is necessary to be fully human or fully alive. Third thing we see is that marriage is a display of God's provision. Marriage is the means by which God would not just solve man's loneliness through romance, but also through community. Because what happens when Adam and Eve come together? Out of this first marriage, God would bring family, community, culture. And that's the larger gift here. It's not just a partner for Adam, but all of humanity. It is how Adam and Eve will fulfill the command in chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply. It's also the way that God protects children. Even in secular studies and research, it is unquestionable that the most ideal environment for young children to grow up into is a home with a mom and a dad that love one another, that are faithful to one another. And in particular, a mom and dad that are covenanted one together in the church. It has a traumatic effect. And I will tell you as the child of a, a marriage that broke apart, that has an effect. If you have been through that, if you are the child of that, or if you have been a part of a marriage that's broken, I don't want you to hear me this morning saying that you're any less than. Again, there is no um, limit to the reaches of how things have gone wrong in this world. However, I want you to hear and celebrate with me that God's original intention was good and beautiful and right, and that we should strive for that for people. We should support one another. If you have people around you whose marriages are in distress, I would urge you, love them, serve them, support them, encourage them. Lastly, marriage is a display of God's good news. And this is the most important part of it. This is the part where we begin to see the bigger picture. The last line of this section is that they were naked and unashamed together. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Adam and Eve together in covenant relationship, in love with one another, naked with one another, and unashamed. 
No shame. But sadly, most of us know that when we turn the page, that's going to go away. When we reach Genesis 3, this beautiful thing that God has given them is going to be shattered, broken. And today, we really have no idea what it's like to live without any kind of shame. We all feel the pain of that. So this is where I want to remind you of something very important, that despite the fact that in this room, in this city, in this world, there are many stories of painful, broken relationships, that marriage is good news for you. Marriage is good news for you because it points towards hope. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul kind of steps back, goes all the way back to Genesis 2, and says, you know what this story was really always about? Do you know what happened back then? It was really always about Christ and his church. We live in a world that has been filled with shame, but Christ is bringing us back to a world without shame. Marriage is meant to point towards Christ, Think about this story just quickly with me. When Adam is found in loneliness, what does God do? He creates an incarnate helper for him. He sends him an incarnate helper. Where else in the Bible do we find about a helper that has come embodied to support and rescue and provide aid? In this story, God creates Eve by wounding him in his side to create his bride. You ever notice that when Jesus hung on the cross and died, he was wounded in his side so that his bride would be washed and cleaned and redeemed? Adam rejoices in his bride as Christ rejoices in us. And most importantly, when we reach the end of the story in Revelation, we're told in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Tim Keller says this, you can't understand the storyline of the Bible unless you understand something about marriage because the Bible begins with this marriage and at the end in Revelation, it ends with a marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And in some ways, you can understand that the whole Bible, what the whole Bible is about and what the gospel is about in terms of marriage. This is why it's so important. Single or married in this room this morning, marriage is a blessing because it paints a picture to us of what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. Do you see the bigger picture? Do you see what God is giving us? Every marriage on earth is intended to be like the tile in a mosaic that proclaims to all of creation that God wants to be united to his bride. You know that the Bible also tells us that marriage will pass away one day? That one day when we see Christ in his fullness, we won't need the picture anymore. We'll understand it. That's something that even Adam and Eve lacked. But because of Christ, we come to him. We won't need the picture because we'll get the real thing. But until then, we should treasure this picture. We should treasure what God is painting for us. We should honor this picture, not so that we can enjoy it, 
only, but so that the world can see who God is. We should be faithful to one another so that they can understand he's faithful. We should serve and encourage one another so that they can see that that's what God wants to do. Even if you are wounded in this place this morning, and I know there are so many of us, I want you to hear that God is faithful to you as a husband is faithful to his bride. That no matter what your story is, this is the story that he offers you by grace and by love. I want you to be able to praise God for marriages because they tell the story of the God who calls us his beloved and who holds fast to us even when we don't hold fast to him. Let me pray for us as we finish. Father, thank you for the beauty of marriage. It is a far greater picture than we can possibly hope to explore in just this morning. So much beauty to it, so much intentionality to it. And Lord, we just confess that we have not always seen it rightly. Sometimes we have failed to see the bigger picture. But God, we want to see it again today. And I especially pray for those wounded in this place this morning, those that carry the burden of the different kinds of relationships they've seen and been a part of. Lord, I ask for your mercy to rain down on them, Lord, and that this morning they would be able to understand what it was like to be without shame because in your presence, because of you, we are without shame regardless of our story. For you love us and you are faithful to us and you are writing for us a better story than we could write for ourselves. Be in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.